Hey, Oasis family, I hope you are well. Thanks for joining us online. I'm so encouraged that you are engaging in church this way. And um, I hope Oasis Church, I hope, you know, many of the people have shared God's word. I hope and pray that it's been a blessing to you because that's really what we want to do. We want to be a church that blesses you. And, and as I have this deep desire to be a blessing to you, I've been thinking also, maybe you're wondering what would be a blessing to me. And, and I've been thinking about that today, and I wanted to share that with you before I jump into the Word. Uh, as I pray and hope that we are a blessing to you, one of the three things that would be a blessing to me would be to know that our church is praying. I hope you're praying for our church. I hope you're praying over your family. I hope you're praying over the dreams and visions that you have in your life. A lot of times we can not pray. The Bible says to pray about everything, be anxious for nothing. And if we're not careful, we can be anxious about everything and pray about nothing. And so if you wanted to be a blessing to me, having a church that I know is praying would be a blessing. The second thing is to have a church that I know is gathering, whether it be coming to church in person on Sundays or, or connect groups online or virtual, or even if you're watching at home and you haven't been in church in two years, start to invite people in your home. Jump in a connect group. Uh, right now we had 300 people, uh, three to 400 people join connect groups. There's probably two or 3,000 people in the church. I really believe if half of our church is in community, which would be 1,500, we're healthy. So please start gathering with someone however you're ready to do that, by coming in person or joining connect group. You can still do that today. I have a connect group at the church on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. That's powerful, but there are plenty of other nights to choose from. And the third thing would be a church that's giving. Um, this is the type of church that I feel so-called to lead, a church that is praying, uh, gathering, and giving. And if we're doing those three things, we're going to see some real awesome things happen in the life of our church. And I couldn't be more proud to be your pastor. I think we had a couple of strong weeks where we talked about uh, subjects that are not just controversial, but biblical. We had a great panel last week where uh, um, you know honest thoughts and perspectives were shared. And so this sermon today is going to kind of be like a recap of all of that and to remind us of the church that I feel like we should be or the church that I'm asking us to be. And when I say asking, I use that term loosely. That's the church we're going to be. And this kind of sermon right here can actually define what kind of church do I want to be a part of? Do I want to be a part of Oasis or do I want to go to another church that does something differently? Because I believe in order to reach the city of Los Angeles, we have to be this type of church that we are today. And then next week, I'm going to get back to the Family Value series. I know we were going through the tabernacle. There was one piece of furniture that I have yet to discuss that I'm going to be talking about next week, the Ark of the Covenant. But I wanted to make sure I give a sermon that kind of recaps these conversations that we have been having. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Tell the truth and shout grace. That's my subject matter today. Tell the truth and shout grace. Grace. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 15, verses 4 through 29. We're going to read a lot of scripture today because that's what we should always be doing when it comes to preaching the word. And let me give you some context about what's happening in Jerusalem. Uh, the church has blown up in Acts chapter 2. It was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And people gathered with one mind and one accord, and the Holy Spirit fell. And so a lot of times we talk about unity in the church, and we talk about look at what happens when the church is in unity, like Acts chapter 2, when we all get together in unity, the, the Holy Spirit fell. Um, but I want you to understand something. Uh, there were no one, everyone at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, for the most part, was all 
Israelite men. One race, one culture, one view. So it was a bit easier for them to be in unity because they were all the same. As I've looked across the church, um, one of the easiest ways to build a church is if everyone looks the same, acts the same, has the same cultural background as you do, because now we can just get to the point. It's easy for me to relate because we all have the same background. When the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2, everyone there had the same background. Everyone there had the same upbringing. Everyone there had the same context. It was a religious, uh, the Spirit fell on religious people who were following the law that previously before um, had never encountered the Holy Spirit. And as I look across the church, this is most churches. We actually form churches that look like us, think like us, and then we say things to get the amens from the congregation, and people from the fringes are never invited in. So we're getting ready to read from Acts 15, where this was the first time that now the Lord, through the, another outpouring of the Holy Spirit, had fell on people who were not from Israel, who were from Greece and Rome and all different types of people, and now they had a serious problem. Because now these people had not grown up to understand what sin was. They had never heard the laws of Moses. None of it made sense. But God gave them the same Holy Spirit that he had given Israel. And this confused everyone. And now they had to get together and have a conversation. One of the things that I notice about this is that they didn't just start preaching the truth to the Gentiles. They said, we got a little issue here. How can we come together in unity? And we're going to read Acts 15 to discover what they did. I've been really enjoying, obviously I gave out a, a Google voice number for those who could text message any questions. Um, but I want to do that again, and I want to do it as long as it makes sense and it is sustainable. Um, because at first I did it because we were talking about a challenging subject. But I've really found great ways to connect with people doing this. People have texted me from Atlanta, from Florida, from here in Los Angeles. It's been really cool. So 818-213-1337, if at any time during this week, as you're processing this, you have a question about the context and content of this sermon. 818-213-1337. Turn your Bibles to Acts 15, verse 4, where it says, When they arrived in Jerusalem... Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So Pharisees would have been the hyper-religious people in the church who probably had been believing for a really long time, obeying the law their whole life, And they weren't satisfied with what God was doing. They were basically saying, hey, uh, Pastor Barnabas, Pastor Paul, you need to put more laws. You need to be more strict with the laws that the church is following. And that is a classic Pharisee move. You can be uh, literally in the middle of your testimony about what the Lord is doing, and a Pharisee will always say, not good enough. The Pharisee invented the not good enough. And so if your first bent is not good enough, check your heart for a Pharisee spirit. Amen. All right, so verse 6 says, so the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. And what I love about that is in verse 6, even though the Pharisees, you really can't get a win as a pastor with a Pharisee, but the Pharisee did not ignore what those, uh, excuse me, the, the pastors, Barnabas and Paul did not uh, uh, you know, ignore what the Pharisees thought. It says they met together to resolve the issue. Um, At the meeting, after a long discussion, 
like the one we, we had last week, last week and modeled for you, Peter stood and addressed them as followers. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles. This is very important you understand this. Literally, what's happening here is what we did last week, where there's a group of believers who thought that the, the, the preachers in the past should be doing something different, and they got together and had a conversation. But I want to point out what Peter said. As you know, God has called me to preach to these people. And I think what's interesting is Peter is starting the argument with addressing, I'm the one who God has called to preach to the Gentiles. Think about Peter, um, and I love this about Peter, because on record, he was like the most trifling disciple, and the Gentiles are bringing all this sin into the church, and Peter, God thought Peter was the perfect disciple to preach to the people who were living in sin. He's like, oh, my guy Peter, he cussed me out to my face, he denied me three times, he will get it, he will have enough grace to preach the gospel because of the grace I have shown Peter. It says he sent me to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. They could hear the good news and believe. We want to be a church that preaches the good news, the gospel of Christ, that Jesus came, he lived, he died, and he was resurrected so that we could have a relationship with our Father in heaven through repentance and faith. That is the gospel. We will never stop preaching that. And then he says this, God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepted the Gentiles, the people who were not from Israel, living a completely different way than what Israel's laws had said they should live, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Isn't this a profound act of grace? Because there was something in these religious people that started to believe that the reason why they got the Holy Spirit was because of the Israel laws they were following. And so what they were wrestling with now, a new theology was created that God's acceptance of people had nothing to do with the laws and the rules they were following, that God was not pleased by the laws that they were following. He was pleased by the faith that produced them following the laws. The scriptures say that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So whatever you do must be by faith for God to be pleased. And so he says this, he made no distinction between us and them. For he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God? Whoa. By burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear. Why are you trying to put a law to stop these Gentile believers from doing something when you know you just cleared your history so your wife wouldn't see it? You see that pause right there? Yeah. <laughs> Why are you not addressing your own sin? Why are you trying to call out the sin of America when you know you have sin in your life? Come on, pride. Come on, somebody. This really dark movie years ago um, with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, who Morgan Freeman, by the way, like I think his first film, he was 50. Yeah. Like I was like, Morgan Freeman, just born an old black man. I just love him, man. He's just in some great films. And... There was this uh, uh, serial killer that was hyper-religious, and he took the seven deadly sins of the Bible, and he chose seven people that he felt represented those seven deadly sins, and he killed them all. 
And I just found it interesting that in his effort to combat what he deemed to be evil, he fell into evil himself. When you make a choice to fight against culture and to fight against evil, it's almost impossible for you not to, come, to succumb to the very evil you are fighting. So this is what happens. He says, you put a yoke on them that neither you, y'all ain't able to do that, so why are you putting that on them? He said, we believe that we're all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Isn't it interesting how this one type of church member was talking about the law, and Peter stood up and said, hey, let me tell you about the grace of Jesus Christ. It says, everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told them about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stood up and said, brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. As it is written, afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord. Think about this for a second. When people can see what God is doing with other people, the rest of humanity will seek the Lord. See, when, when Peter was preaching grace, it made other people seek God for themselves. And I think we are afraid of people seeking God. We would rather tell them the truth. This is so important. Here at Oasis Church, yes, we tell the truth, but we shout grace. Because when we shout grace, people seek God. And when people seek God, God is truth. They will always find the truth from believers who are shouting grace. And what we have done is we have been so displeased with culture, we're so fearful that this negative culture is pervading the church that we start shouting truth and talking about grace. And it needs to be the other way around. We tell the truth, but we shout grace because grace is what makes people seek God. And so they continue and say, so this, my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. The whole purpose of this meeting was to remove the difficulty that people were having in turning to God. Have we made it hard for people to come to God? Have we talked, has, has all of our posts on social media, I don't know about the, the God you serve, have we made it difficult for people to go to God? And so it says in verse 20, instead, we should write them and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, and from eating the meat of strangled animals and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. Okay, you got we wait, we got to stop. We got to stop. There are hundreds and hundreds of Levitical laws, some of which if you do these things in the laws, the, the Bible says those things are punishable by death. And here are these leaders that are saying, I've consulted with the Holy Spirit, and we're not going to tell them the truth about all these laws that God has given us. We're going to pick three. We're going to start with three. 700 things that you probably should be doing, but I'm going to start with three. Why would a great Christian leader, sounds like they might be being, you know, passive or political or afraid of the truth. Because they're not going to tell them the other 700 things that God wants them to do. No, they're going to just start with three. And here's what's crazy. Out of all the 700 things, two out of the three have to do with food. Not sexuality. Well, one of them was sexuality. But 
the reason why they brought up sexuality was not because they thought that those were sin. Watch this. This is so profound. One was sexuality, two were food. Because in Jewish culture, if you slept with someone outside of marriage, you were considered defiled and could not participate with com- in communion at the dinner table with the rest of the believers. And then the believers who were Jewish would not eat food sacrificed to, to, to idols or meat with blood in it. Come on, black people who like your steaks well done. You are more biblical than you think. Come on, man. I learned to eat a steak the right way from a white guy. You overcooked your meat. And then finally, like, they just brought, eventually I'm at the place where they just bring the cow and I just take a piece of, but they started with the laws that prevented them from being in community together. So I talked about Roe versus Wade a couple of weeks ago. Not because I deem that to be the worst sin in America, like a Pharisee would say, not acknowledging their own sin, but I chose that subject because that's what kept us from the dinner table with believers who think differently about this subject. So out of all the things I could tell you as your pastor, all the things that God would want you to do, I want you to pick three things that have prevented you from being in community with another person. And start with those things. Because now, if you weren't defiled by immorality sexually and you just ate what they wanted you to eat, they were like, at least they can eat together. What is one of our family values? We eat together. How profound is it that they chose the laws that kept them from being together? I want to be with you so bad, I just want you to do something that at least culturally, it's kind of like this thing where uh, if, if our whole church was filled with vegans and we were talking about murder, the spirit of the Lord would say, hey, let's make a rule in the church. Not that we don't kill people because that's not what's dividing us right now. We'll get to that. But like soybean chicken, that's a new rule in our church because without that, we won't eat together. Do you know how profound that is? What is the laws that keep us from being together? What are these rules that we've set up in our heart that keep? Those are the ones that we need to get rid of. And the Bible says that they did. And the whole reason why they did this, verse 28, I want to make sure I read this. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. Few, not many, few. And I have found that when a church is shouting truth and talking about grace, the requirements get many. And when a church is shouting grace and telling the truth, the requirements are few. It's not, and I want to be clear, there are plenty of things that you should do. that If you follow these laws of God, but what I'm seeing on the internet is if you're a Christian, this is required. It's required for you to, and the requirements are getting many, and in the early church, the requirements were few. And we have to understand that when we have a church that is shouting grace and telling the truth, the requirements will be few, and we are leaning on the Holy Spirit to lead them to the truth. And the whole premise of this, the whole premise of this was this thing that I feel that God is speaking to me about Oasis Church. What should we do at Oasis Church? Our number one goal should be this. We should not 
make it difficult for people to turn to God. And I think we've made it hard. We've made it hard. We're shouting about um, Supreme Court justices, supporting politicians on the internet, ridiculing other people who don't uh, believe what we believe or who don't think about it the way we think about it. And we've made it hard for people to come to God. And if you're saying to you right now, saying, Pastor John, I'm sorry, man, I'm not hearing you. I think we need to be bold about the truth. We need to be bold, 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 bold. When's the last time you led somebody to Jesus? When's the last time you prayed a salvation prayer over someone? When's the last time someone got freed from his spirit because of your prayer? When's the last time someone actually came to the Lord? Not that you discipled someone. When's the last time someone actually got introduced to Christ through you? And if you are bold, 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 truth, 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 I promise your salvations are way down and your amens from religious people are way up. And we are not that church. We don't preach to get amens from from saved people. That's not what we do. We want to disciple saved people, but we don't want to make it difficult for people to turn to God. And if you are watching this online and someone has made it difficult for you to turn to God, I really believe that Oasis Church is the perfect church for you. What I love about Jesus is this, is that um, there's a couple of people who weren't walking in the truth. In Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, um, Jesus has just been resurrected, and the Bible says that these two guys um, were really sad about Jesus being, uh, you know, delivered over to the cross and dying. And even though everyone in Israel would have known that a Messiah was coming, that he would die on a cross and be resurrected, um, they did not believe. So it says in verse 13, Luke 24, now, now the same day when Christ got, uh, was, was crucified, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked him, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas. That name is so fire. (laughs) Cleopas, like Cleopas. I wish I knew a Cleopas in high school, man. That's a biblical name right there, Cleopas. This is a good name to yell, Cleopas. It just sounds good. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Jesus, what things? (laughs) Jesus is a G, man. He's just like, he knows what's going on, but he's, he's having a conversation. He could have just skipped straight to the truth. Where are you guys going? I've been resurrected. No, but he had a conversation. He was willing to take the time for them to get a personal revelation. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm about to throw this. This is God. Yeah. Full of grace. Full of truth. Come on, Pastor Jesus. Just tell him the truth. Why are you beating around the subject? Why are you saying what things? You know the things. They don't believe. Just tell them. No, no, no. What things? Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God. No, he was God. Notice Jesus didn't stop him. Hey, 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 I'm more than a prophet. I'm God. Tell, I'm, I, I got to tell you the truth. No, just conversation. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Jesus didn't cut him off. He, I am the one. No, didn't cut him off. Still in conversation mode. I'm so glad a Pharisee wasn't there. I'm so glad a Pharisee wasn't there. Because the Pharisee would have said, Jesus, what are you doing? They just said, come on, come on, truth. Nope, conversation. 
In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So we listen to what they had to say. And then here he comes. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter in his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. I'm about to throw his binder again. We love to talk about the scriptures concerning life, which is powerful. We love to talk about the scriptures concerning sin, which is powerful. But in the moment of their unbelief, Jesus took the time to explain the word of God. And the Bible says he specifically talked about the verses that would give them a revelation about himself. Jesus. Here are the verses that will help you believe in me. Because if you believe in me, you will be led to all truth. And so he says, he broke that all down. You know how far this is? You know how long that would have taken? Now watch this. This is my favorite verse. It seems simple, but it's not. It's profound. As they approached the village to where they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly Stay with us, for it is early evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. You guys, the outpouring of the Spirit is happening in Jerusalem. Jesus has told every believer within his midst, wait, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in Jerusalem, in the upper room, and now Jesus is walking with two doubters seven miles in the opposite direction of an outpouring without mentioning to them that the outpouring is seven miles in the opposite direction or not even telling them, like, you got to understand this, seven miles in the opposite direction. Would you walk seven miles in the opposite direction of where people should be just to have long enough to tell them revelations about Christ? Or would you shout truth and say, hey, the, uh, the, the outpourings happen in Jerusalem? Or would you walk with them? Sometimes grace is walking miles in the opposite direction and explaining things to people that would make them turn around. And I want you to understand this. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets that are spoken. Did not, we want to go back to that line because he did tell them the truth. Because I know you're thinking, yeah, but he did tell them the truth. But did it work? He's, this is Christ. There is nobody more anointed to tell the truth than him. And he said the truth in verse 25. How foolish are you and how slow you are to believe. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And he explained all the scriptures. And they were like, hey, you want to stay tonight? Get something to eat? They completely ignored the truth that he said. Until verse 30. When he was at the table with them. Oh, shoot. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Now they no longer needed Jesus to tell them anything, because when he broke bread with them in relationship, they asked each other, weren't our hearts not burning within us 
when he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us. The moment he got in relationship, their eyes were open to the truth. So in Acts 15, they knew the Gentiles weren't believing the truth. But if we can just get them to the dinner table, we can disciple them. We can't disciple them in our stories. We can't disciple them from platforms. We can't shout truth from the platforms. We have to shout grace from the platforms and then shout and then speak truth at the dinner table. Because if we don't shout grace from the platform, we'll never get the opportunity to speak the truth at the dinner table. This is profound because verse 33 says they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem and there they found the 11 and those with them and assembled together. Who were the 11? The 11 disciples, minus Judas, because he was tripping and he was dead, that were waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard of Cleopas in Scripture? Did you know Cleopas was out the outpouring? They assembled together. Now, unless he left and get something to eat before the Spirit came, the Bible, I don't know. But you could assume, unless he went to Raising Cane's or Chick-fil-A, the only two restaurants I think that God would allow to be, like, or in and out it says he was assembled with the 11, and we know the Spirit fell on the 11. So unless he went to the mall or to get something to eat, Cleopas was there at the outpouring, and the only reason he was there is because Jesus walked seven miles in the opposite direction of an outpouring and shared a meal seven miles away from the outpouring. I wish we had those people in our church. And I think that we do. But those people are being manipulated by Pharisees to believe that that's not Christianity. You got to be telling them scriptures and the truth. No, no, no. That's not true. And the people who were waiting for the outpouring, there's nothing wrong with that either. Some of us could say the 11 disciples should have followed Cleopas to Emmaus. No. But Jesus did. So for us to be a great church, we need people seeking God in prayer, waiting for an outpouring. But we also need pastors who are willing to walk seven miles in the opposite direction so that someone who is missing from the outpouring can be there. I believe this is a profound act of pastoring. And it really shows what happens when you shout grace and speak the truth. We should not make it difficult for people to turn to God. The other thing I have found that I really, as I've studied the scripture, and I've really talked about Jesus. Because remember, culture didn't kill Jesus. Religious people did. Religious leaders in the Bible were the greatest threat to Jesus. And government and culture were the greatest threat to the church. You have to understand this. Whenever I am most like Jesus, I get a lot of flack from religious people. And whenever I am building a church on the world, word, I get flack from the world. It's facts. Big facts, as the homies say. If I'm trying to be like Christ in this situation, religious people come after me. And if I'm trying to build a church based off the word, the world comes after me. So the world is not a threat to Christ. Religion is a threat to Christ. But the world is a threat to a church that wants to build their lives on the word of God. And so what happens is if you are not bothering both <laughs> you know, types of people, 
<laughs> you're probably not living a complete Christian life. If you're railing against culture every week in your sermons and all the religious people are like, you tell him, pastor. Jesus is nowhere in the room. But if both people are frustrated with you, you're probably doing something right. So in all the text messages, I kind of threw both sides off, religious people and people who don't live their life according to the word. And I was like, Jesus is like, well done. Uh, you know you're in politics when you only make one side mad and that whole other side says amen. Religious leaders were the biggest threat to the Bible. And I do not agree. My goal is we should start with what's wrong in the church, not what's wrong with culture. You'll never hear a message from me about, about what's wrong with culture. I think the church is what we need to fix. Jesus, for the most part, didn't spend a lot of time railing against culture. He didn't go, man, Rome and their sexuality issues and Rome and don't you be deceived by Rome. Rome is, is about creed and money. Yeah, he'd bring it up, but that's not what he preached. Matthew 23, Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the laws of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. What? So they give people the law, but they don't help them. It's like kind of like, you know, let me pass this law, and then everything to help you, I'll call it socialism, and then you're on your own. But trust God, but I won't help you. That's not Christianity. And it says everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra ride, wide prayer boxes and, you know, and Chelsea boots and scripture verses inside. And they wear these amazing robes with extra long tassels. And they love to sit at the head of the table at banquets and conferences and the seats of honor at the conferences and the synagogues. And they love to rejoice, res receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace and be called Rabbi, Rabbi Low, Pastor Julian, Pastor Julian. They love it. Matter of fact, they love it so much they don't even, they get offended when you don't call them by their title. I'm a pastor. Don't, don't, don't refer to me as Julian. If you, if you honor me and you respect me, call me Pastor Julian. It says, don't let anyone call you that, for you only have one teacher and all you are equal as brothers and sisters. Oh, we, we, don't, we don't see us? Well, where's that in the church? Are we preaching that? Don't let anyone call you pastor. That's not... Oh, we preach Roe versus Wade because that's Jesus is pro-life, but he's also pro-not lead pastor in titles. We don't, have you ever heard that in church? Nope, because I want you to call me pastor. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you only have one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What sorrow awaits the culture who is constantly pushing sexuality? No. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, I misread that. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. First time he said that. Then you will shut, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you won't let each other, you won't let others enter either. What sorrow awaits you teachers of the religious law and Pharisees? Hypocrites, number two. For you cross land and sea to make one convert and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. Blind guides, what sorrow awaits you? For you say it means nothing to swear by God's temple. He is breaking it down. I'm going to skip to verse 23. 
Because he says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, time of number three. For you are careful to even tie the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. You blind guides. You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you religious teachers of the law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! Time number four. For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed, and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law, you truth tellers, you truth tellers, you truth shouters, you truth shouters, Pharisees, hypocrites, time number five, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but fill on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you, sh- you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy, time number six, and lawlessness. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites, time number seven, the number of completion. <laughs> you guys, you guys, he was not rebuking them because they were truth tellers. He was rebuking them because they were truth shouters. All they wanted to do was hold people accountable to the law. And he says, you want to hold people accountable to what you don't even do. Yeah, I just think we need to rail against culture. I mean, this whole sermon, can you imagine? I try to preach the truth and Jesus stands up in my my sermon and goes, hypocrite! Yeah, I think we just need to, hypocrite! This is a profound act of Jesus establishing what this is supposed to look like. I really believe, and I believe this so strong, that we have reversed this in many church circles where we are grace tellers and truth shouters, and the Holy Spirit has been saying to me, I want you to be a grace shouter and a truth teller. And the truth telling is at the table and the grace shouting is from the platform. And that's why we need people in community. Because if you only are coming and hearing the services, you're not getting the full truth of God's word. Because there's certain things I can't tell you with a microphone, I have to tell you. And there's certain things Jesus will tell you that he's so close to you, it's like he whispers in your ear. Some of the greatest truths I've ever received are from the whispers of God, not the shouts of preachers. And they've been tough truths, but they've come from such a space of love because I can receive that truth because of the grace that God has shown me for many of the truths that I've disobeyed on. And so what happens is, is that when, if you are, I want to be careful because if you're living your life in complete sin right now, you, you, sometimes when we hear a message on grace, we go, oh, thank God. Now I can keep doing what I'm going to do. But no, 1 John verse 2, verses 15 through 17 says, do not love this world or the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. And so when we seek the world for the things that we love, it's a sign that love is absent. If you have something in your life that you love so much that, you, that the world can offer you, 
that you can't feel happy unless you have it, the Bible says that the biggest sign that the love of the Father is not in you. That you have a theological knowledge of the love of God, but the love of God is not operating in you. Because when the love of God is operating in you, you don't love the things of the world so much that they, you make it your identity, you make it who you are. It's absence of the love of the Father is not in you. Any identity other than a son or a daughter of God is the absence of the Father's love in you. If your sexuality is your identity, if your career is your identity, if who, what you do is who you are, the, the Bible says the, the love of the Father is not in you. Now watch this, truth shouters. I have seen on the internet, well, the reason why they do that is because we don't have pastors in the pulpit yelling the truth. But the scripture does not say that if you do those things, it's because someone hasn't told you the truth. It says if you do those things, the love of the Father is not in you. How do you get the love of the Father? Through the belief in the gospel and receiving grace. And the Bible says in Romans 5, the Holy Spirit pours the love of the Father into your heart. You love the Father through grace shouters. So theologically, it is disproven that people don't love the world because their pastors aren't telling them the truth. People love the world because they're unloved. You understand that? How many people have been profoundly impacted by your love? And are we so prideful to believe that we are making a difference from shouting the truth in our story and we have 387 followers? At least get enough love out there so people follow you and then tell them the truth. <laughs> well, they're following you because you're not telling me the truth. No, they're following me because I love them. And people know. I just told some people the truth this week. It's a tough truth. But I'm a grace shouter and a truth teller. You got to understand this. The church's grace is the gateway to the world's revelation of truth. The world will reject the truth we tell without the grace we preach. I'm going to write that. I'm gonna, you got to write that down. The church's grace is the gateway to the world's revelation of truth. The world will reject the truth we tell without the grace we preach. I did not accept Christ until I was in my 30s because no one told me about the grace of God. They told me all the laws. They told me all the truth. But no one ever sat me down and told me about the grace of God. And thank God for the first person who did because I, man, it changed my life. Hebrews 12 15 says this, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Jesus, in John 16, verse 12, we're, we're wrapping up here. Jesus, remember, was full of grace of truth. And watch what he says in John 16, verse 12. There's so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. What? There's some things I want to tell you, but you can't handle it right now, so I'm going to wait. This is when the Pharisee comes. Come on, Jesus, give it to him straight. <laughs> Come on now. Tell him the truth, Jesus. Don't hold back on the truth. Be bold. Be brave. Don't be passive. Come on, truth. This is where they would, if there was Instagram, you would hear throughout reposts on everyone's story, pastors need to be more bold. No, no, he said, I got a lot of stuff I want to tell you, but I'm not. And the original translation is you couldn't carry it. 
bear it is I, you couldn't carry it. So the visual picture of this Greek word is this. Let's say this is the truth. He says, I can't tell you the truth because I could tell you, but you wouldn't carry and sustain the truth in you when you walk away. You wouldn't leave with it. That's what that word means. You couldn't handle it. You would set it down. It means that you would not carry it. There's so much I want to tell you, but you can't. This is Christ, filled with grace and truth. There's so much I want to tell you, but I'm not going to. Every single time I ever preach a sermon, you know there's so much I want to tell you, but I don't, there's certain times where I don't think you could bear it. I don't think you would carry it. And then he says this in the next verse. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. It doesn't say he will tell you. It says he will guide you. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He'll tell you about the future and will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. The spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. If Jesus was a humble, humble enough to hold back truth based off someone's capacity to understand it or hear it and wait for the Holy Spirit to do it, Jesus said, all I got to do is get the Holy Spirit. If I can get the Holy Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit will lead you in all truth. Why are pastors sh shouting truth? And Jesus was like, mm, not yet. Oh, man, we need a Pharisee right now to tell Jesus, Jesus, you need to go to Bible college. <laughs> you need to learn the truth, Jesus. Jesus, you got to be bold. I think boldness is great. It isn't one of the fruit of the Spirit, though. Courage is not. We need the church needs courage. Courage isn't one of the fruits of the Spirit. Courage is a choice. If you have courage, it has nothing to do with your relationship with Jesus. You're just a courageous person. Why didn't, if Jesus thought courage was so important, everybody who loves would have courage. But we have actually replaced kindness with courage. And we call it boldness. It's not good, church. We're not shouting grace. All right. So in this culture, I've gone a little long today, but it's okay because this is great theology. In this culture, we have fallen under the false pretense that because things are so bad, we need to lean into the truth. We are not in a worse time than Zechariah the prophet was in. When Babylon and Assyria and all these different uh, worldly cultures had literally torn down the church. Can you imagine if our American government not just had closed the churches, but tore everyone down so that no one could come to church? And Zechariah was called to rebuild the church. And the Bible says in Zechariah 4 verses 1 through 7, Zechariah was a prophet and the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep and he said to me what do you see and I said I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on top of it with seven lips on each of the lamps Woo! if you look in Revelation the lampstands represent the church but there's nowhere in Revelation where he talks about the lips. But now Zechariah, in an era of rebuilding, says there's lips on the lampstand. Jesus, don't make me throw my binder. And he says, and I said to the angel who talked to me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, 
but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I just realized reading this scripture that he's talking about how the church uses their lips. My brain is hurting right now. Because I just thought this was the verse you quote whenever you want to go in, into acting. Or like start a business. Not by might, not by power, but by the spirit, says the Lord. No, he says, I saw seven gold lampstands and seven lips on the lampstands. And the lampstands are like, wait, wait, not by might. You're not going to do this in your own strength. You're not going to say. You're going to say what the spirit wants you to say. Who are you, O great mountain? The great mountain represents the things that were coming against God's people. Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And Zerubbabel shall bring forward the very first stone to rebuild amid shouts of grace, grace. And the enemy wants to deceive believers that in this time of rebuilding families, culture, America, and God's kingdom, the shout is truth, truth. No, the shout is grace. And then at the table of God in communion, we tell the truth. This is how God has meant for the church to be, and this is what Oasis will be. And if you want to shout truth and mention grace every once in a while, you're in the wrong church. And I feel free to say that, that for you, this could be your last Sunday, because that's not who we are, and that's not who Oasis is. That's who we've never been for 35 years. We shout grace, and just like Jesus, if we can make it to the dinner table, people's eyes will be open. Please get in community. Please join a connect group. There's nothing better that could happen to you than be in a community where people can encourage you and build you up in your faith. But as we are rebuilding, this church will be shouting grace because that is what our culture needs. Father in heaven, I pray that Oasis Church would be truth tellers and grace shouters from this day forward. And for anyone who has yet to shout grace, the grace of Jesus, that is the thing that saved me. We're saved by grace through faith and shouting the law to unsaved people and shouting morality to unsaved people is the highest level of a Pharisee spirit. And I condemn it in our church right now in the name of the Lord and that we would shout grace to people and the gospel would permeate everything that we do and that Christianity wouldn't make its way through culture, but that the spirit would make its way through us individually. And because of that, we would be fruitful and we would multiply and the love of God would be poured into people's heart because they love the world because they don't have love. Not because someone didn't tell them the truth. And so I pray that we would receive your word with humility and you would correct us, shape us, even me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you so much. Can't wait to see you next week where we'll be talking about the Ark of the Covenant and finishing up um, the we worship together aspect of our family values. I know it's been a long time. I think we started that in April, but it's okay. It's July. It's all right. We're doing great. And then we're going to be continuing the rest of the series of our family values. And uh, it's going to be awesome. Love you so much. And I'll see you soon.